Android might be doing away with sideloading. Mozilla is rolling out new data broker protections and a new CEO. A well-known privacy provider has been sold. And did 3 million smart toothbrushes really get hacked? We'll find out. Welcome to Surveillance Report 166, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news in the past week. I am Nathan from The New Oil. And I'm Henry from TechLore. Our promo segment is the same as always. We have Patreon, where for $5 a month, you can ask us a question in the Q&A segment that we answer later in the week. For $10 a month or more, you do not have to listen to this promo segment, and you also get an expanded version of the podcast with more of our analysis and opinions and things like that. If you are not a fan of Patreon, we also have LibrePay. You won't get any perks, but it's not Patreon. For some people, that's cool. And of course, if you want the maximum amount of anonymity, we offer Monero. So we don't see anything about you. We do see all the contributions. Thank you to every single person who contributes financially and helps us keep going, helps pay for the time, the hosting all that kind of stuff on the topic of patreon there is a big announcement at the end of the podcast so make sure you stick around especially if you are a subscriber or thinking about subscribing we're going to be changing some stuff up highlight story this week android users in singapore to be blocked from installing unverified apps as part of an anti-scam trial so this is a security tool that will work in the background to detect apps that demand suspicious permissions like those that grant the ability to spy on screen content or read sms messages which scammers have been known to abuse to intercept one-time passwords singapore is the first country to begin the gradual rollout of the security feature over the next few weeks done in collaboration with the Cybersecurity Agency of Singapore. The update will progressively arrive on all Android users' devices and will be enabled by default, important note here, through Google Play Protect, which is already an existent thing on pretty much any person's Android device, but this is a feature that will be rolled out as part of that, again, assuming you're using anything with Google Play services. Users cannot deactivate the pilot feature without disabling all of Google Play Protect. So the Google spokesperson said, we've designed the pilot this way as fraudsters frequently use social engineering to convince users to deactivate mobile app protection warnings when scamming or stealing data from a victim. The feature marks Google's most heavy-handed feature to stamp out malicious sideloaded apps. Android users were earlier recommended to conduct a scan of their apps to be notified whether the app was safe to install. Samsung also launched Autoblocker for Samsung Galaxy device users who are using the One UI 6 software in November. The tool, which has to be activated in the settings menu, bars sideloaded apps from unverified sources. And I'm going to add a personal note here, which is Google actually has already kind of rolled out a feature like this in the past, but it's very exclusive to its advanced protection program, which also bars you from installing sideloaded apps unless they're already installed in your device before you enable GAPP. So this is a very interesting decision, and I guess what we don't know yet is the nuance of this feature, if it bars all sideloaded apps or just the ones that they deem to be suspicious, because it says here it's going to be in the background to detect apps that demand suspicious permissions. Either way, it sounds like this is something you can opt out of if you don't want to use Google Play Protect, and definitely a bit concerning though. And also, just for everybody who's curious, this is all tied to Google Play services, so if you're on a custom ROM and you're not using Google Play services, this isn't even something you have to concern yourself with. For the record, I don't think this is inherently a bad thing. You can opt out of the feature itself, you can opt out of Google Play Protect, you can opt out of using Google Play services still, so those options still all exist. I guess it's a question of, in my eyes, how effective this actually is. Google can't even keep malware off its own Play Store, so how well are they going to prevent these things outside of the Play Store from happening? And Apple has the same issue right now, too, as well. 
We didn't throw this in the story, so I'll cover it just very quickly right now. But a similar story to kind of speak to this story is on iOS. Right now, in light of all the EU stuff, Apple is saying that you shouldn't be able to sideload apps for user safety. And yet in its own app store, there's actually a fake LastPass, which people assume is meant to fish user credentials. And so this Apple allowed it to exist on its app store, and it looks like a pretty much duplicate of LastPass, and it pretty much convinced a few people to download it. It's now removed from the App Store, but it kind of speaks to this story as well, which is, I do think it's overall safer to keep apps in one location, but also like how effective are these tools. I think it's a step in a good direction, especially with the way they're doing it, because again, you can opt out of all of this, even with Google Play services, but you have to turn off Play Protect. Yeah, I don't know if I... Cree. I don't I don't like the all or nothing approach of like you can either have all of Google protections or you can go f yourself. I don't like that duality there. I went looking if this was going to be just Singapore because I assumed from the wording that it was going to roll out to all Android everywhere. And I don't think that's the case after all. But there there is a good chance it's not going to stay in Singapore because a lot of the stories I went to like double check this in. Well, here's Hacker News. They have a list of them too. In the past, Google launched real-time scanning for select markets like India, Thailand, Singapore, and Brazil. So it's basically additional protections for just those countries. So I think this might actually expand to those other countries if it goes over well here. So this may not be just for Singapore. This may be for other big markets where I know we have listeners like India, Brazil, probably have some from Thailand. Yeah, so I kind of misjudged the scope on this one a little bit, but it still could potentially affect a lot more than just Singapore. And I mean, who knows, maybe in two years, they'll be like, oh my God, that works so well in those other countries, we're going to roll it out everywhere. And then that'll really be an issue. Let's roll into data breaches. So we're going to start with a really big one. Data breaches at, I'm totally going to mess these up, Viametis and Almiris impact 33 million in France. So those are healthcare providers and insurance services in France with technological and administrative solutions to facilitate transactions. Viametis said that the exposure includes names, dates of birth, insurer details, social security numbers, marital status, civil status, and guarantees open to third-party payments. No banking information, email addresses, postal details, or telephone numbers were exposed. As Viametis said, it does not store this type of data on the breached system. The breach at Almeris was initially reported by local news outlets citing anonymous sources, and the firm is yet to release an official statement. However, the Data Protection Authority in France has now confirmed both breaches. Cybercriminals steal data of 2 million in SQL injection and XSS attacks. So they've stolen the personal data of over 2 million job seekers after compromising 65 legitimate job listing and retail sites using these attacks. The attackers mainly focus on the APAC region, targeting sites in Australia, Taiwan, China, Thailand, India, and Vietnam to steal job seekers' names, emails, phone numbers, employment history, education, and other information. The attackers will likely attempt to sell the stolen data to other cyber criminals. Hopskip Drive says personal data of 155,000 drivers stolen in a data breach. Hopskip Drive offers an Uber-style rideshare service for children and teenagers. The startup partners with school districts to transport students who live outside traditional bus routes or need extra help getting to school. Stolen data includes names, email and postal address, driver's license numbers, and other non-driver identification card numbers. And the breach was first discovered in June of 2023. Verizon Insider data breach hits over 63,000 employees. Verizon is one of the big Sol and ISP companies here in the States, and this impacted employees again, so not customers, but it did include full names, physical addresses, social security numbers, national IDs, genders, union affiliation, date of births, and compensation. This incident does not appear to impact customer information. That's all we got for data breaches. So now we'll start off in companies, and we have a couple of big stories from Mozilla. So first of all, Mozilla is introducing what they're calling Mozilla Monitor Plus, a new 
tool to automatically remove your personal information from data broker sites. Mozilla Monitor was previously called Firefox Monitor, and it's a free service that notifies you when your email has been part of a breach, and they have announced a new paid service offering, which is automatic data removal and continuous monitoring of your exposed personal information. This does include a free one-time scan where people can take the next step to see where their personal information has been exposed on sites selling it for profit. This could include information like your name, current and previous home addresses, and phone numbers. It could also go another layer deeper with information like family member names, criminal history, your kid's school district, and even your hobbies. So basically, you can do one scan for free just to see what's out there but removing it will actually cost you money. To get the complimentary scan, you will need to provide your first and last name, current city and state that you live in, your date of birth, and your email address. This information will be encrypted and follows Mozilla's privacy policy. This is the least amount of information we need to get the most accurate search results for you. From there, you can see where your personal info is exposed, either through a data breach or through data broker sites. We also include high-risk breaches, exposures that may include social security numbers, credit card information, your bank account, and PIN numbers that you have been exposed to and show how you can fix and resolve it. If you're the type who wants to set it and forget it, then we can automatically and continuously request to remove your personal information with an annual paid subscription of $8.99 a month, which is $170.88 a year. On your behalf, Mozilla Monitor will start with the data removal request, then scan every month to make sure your personal information stays off broker sites. Monitor Plus will let you know once your personal information has been removed from more than 190 data broker sites, which they claim is twice the number of other competitors. Also, just as a quick shout out, Jonah, like right after this was announced, dropped a video about this that I'll, I'll leave links to in the show notes if you guys want to see his his take on it and some more insight from him. Well, on the topic of Mozilla, Mozilla is naming a new CEO as it pivots to data privacy. Pretty much Mitchell Baker is the previous CEO and Laura Chambers will step in as an interim CEO to run operations until a permanent replacement is found. She plans to focus on building out new products that address growing privacy concerns while actively looking for that full-time CEO. AI has given the nonprofit foundation and its co-founder Baker a fresh sense of mission in creating alternatives to tackle deepfakes, data privacy issues, and the power of big tech. It launched a Mozilla.ai startup last year, and Mozilla Corp is focused on product extensions like Mozilla Monitor that wipes subscribers' data off the web. So... This is breaking news that just arrived like literally a couple hours before we started recording. So if we're off on some of the details here, I apologize, but we're also pulling this directly from their website. So we shouldn't say anything that's too off. Skiff is joining Notion. Quoting the webpage, we're extremely excited to accelerate this mission by joining forces with Notion's world-class team, and we are pursuing big plans for making all of our online lives freer and more empowered. As we begin to shift focus to our shared efforts with Notion, we will be closing down Skiff's product suite after a six-month sunset period. For the next six months, Skiff services will continue to operate without disruption, and users can freely duplicate, migrate, or export data. You can also now set up a forwarding address to redirect mail to any other provider. All user data remains end and encrypted, and Skiff products will never monetize your data. Accounts and data on Skiff will not be converted into Notion accounts. And for the record, all Skiff products, email, calendar, drive, all of it. All right, next story, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm going to read the story, but there's actually some really weird stuff going on here, and we don't know what's going on yet. So very preliminary. We'll get more updates to this. Stay subscribed. iOS 17.4 seems to remove web app support for iPhone users in the EU. This is released in the beta version. So it's 17.4 beta. 17.4 is not public yet. And it's to comply with the EU's Digital Markets Act, which we've already talked about in previous surveillance support, which pretty much forces the company to allow alternative app stores on the iPhone. The update also brings some changes related to web browsers. And now, apparently rumored some bad news too, which is users in the EU who have installed the beta have noticed that they can no longer install and run web apps on their iPhone. 
So the way this looks is Apple has always allowed you to add websites to your iPhone home screen so that they can be used as web apps. Over the last few years, Apple has actually added more features to improve support for web apps, like delivering push notifications with icon badges and lots of other things to help integrate web apps to make them seem like regular apps. But again, for iOS 17.4 beta, some people in Europe are saying that this isn't working. So a dev does believe that this could be due to a bug. With the release of beta 2 earlier this week, the system now shows an alert though, telling users that web apps will open from your default browser from now on. And although you can still add websites to the iPhone home screen, they just open in the default web browser without actually giving you the full screen web app that makes it seem like a native app. This is a lot of consequences for users, like all data stored by these web apps is automatically deleted with the update. Websites can also no longer send push notifications to users, and Apple is yet to comment on these changes, but they seem to be related to the DMA. One of the requirements set by the new EU regulation is that Apple must let developers create web browsers with their own engine, and since the web apps are also based on Safari and WebKit, Apple may have opted to remove PWAs in the EU so that it wouldn't be accused of further leveraging its own engine. There's a certain web app developer in the privacy community. They don't know yet. They're looking into this as well. No one really knows what's going on yet, but their theory behind this is that Apple might also just be clamping down on PWA requirements. So for those who don't know, there's actually certain requirements that a website has to hit and also some technological stuff they have to implement into the website for your browser to recognize that it's a web app. That's all we have for companies. So now we'll move into research. Critical vulnerability affecting most Linux distros allows for bootkits. So quoting the article, Linux developers are in the process of patching a high severity vulnerability that in certain cases allows the installation of malware that runs at the firmware level, giving infections access to the deepest parts of a device where they're hard to detect or remove. The vulnerability resides in shim, which in the context of Linux is a small component that runs in the firmware early in the boot process before the operating system has started. Successful exploitations of the vulnerability allow attackers to neutralize this mechanism by executing malicious firmware at the earliest stages of the boot process before the unified extensible firmware interface firmware has loaded and handed off control to the operating system. That's as technical as I'm going to get. It's a very technical article. It goes over exactly how it works, the challenges that developers are facing in patching this, so on and so forth. But at the very end here, because you know, whenever I see one of these stories, my first question is always like, okay, what do we do about this? The harm from successful exploitation is serious and is reason for the severity rating of 9.8 out of 10. People should install patches promptly once they become available. We just want to address, some people have noted that we seem to cover more Linux malware than other types of malware. I think you're right, to be honest. We were talking about that before the recording. We do cover a lot of Linux malware because news by definition is unusual. Windows malware is dime a dozen. My own newsfeed, a lot of it comes from Bleeping Computer, and I swear to God, they post like six new vulnerabilities a day, not just for Windows specifically, but just in general. And also a lot of them are just low level and not really that important. We try to stick to like the major ones or the ones that are really unusual, which generally includes Linux because we have a lot of Linux users and Mac because we don't see a lot of Mac ones and we'll stick to some of the higher Windows ones, but we're not trying to single out Linux or make fun of it. I mean, I use Linux. I know Henry's used Linux in the past. We're big Linux people. It's just, we're trying to let you guys know to be aware of this stuff and defend yourselves and, you know, stay updated. And again, news by definition is unusual. So I'm sorry if you feel like we're picking on Linux. That's not what we're trying to do. Still use Linux for some things. We just try our best to cover the news. That's all. All I wanted to say is people should keep in mind vulnerabilities because if you see this vulnerability on a Windows or Mac device, I think your instant reaction is, oh, ha, ha, look at them, so stupid, they don't know what they're doing. 
And that's not normally how we look at these vulnerabilities. Unless it was genuinely a stupid vulnerability, like they really screwed up. Normally it's like, hey guys, there's a new vulnerability because they come up almost every week. Make sure you're staying updated and Linux isn't any different. Notice how we're not poking fun at Linux for having a vulnerability, just like we don't inherently poke fun at Windows, Android, iOS, Mac OS for having a vulnerability. Unless again, it's actually a stupid vulnerability because they did something stupid, which is actually pretty rare. Everything has vulnerabilities. On that note, not to keep this going forever, but it's been a while since we've mentioned this. For anybody who's new here, TechLore is, your tagline is, for the masses. I don't really have a tagline, but I've always said on the website that like the threat model that I address is just normal everyday tracking across the web and stuff like that. So keep that in mind. Like we're not here to laugh at the Windows users and, you know, the iPhone users and like, yes, we want everyone to do better and be the best that they can, but privacy is a journey and we're trying to meet people where they are. So if you're the person who's already self-hosting literally everything and has a completely like open source, big tech free home, I don't know why you're wasting your time watching us because we are not people you're going to learn from. You, you need to go find more hardcore people. Like that's never been our, our target audience or threat model. I mean, on our ends, we still do try to cater to that audience very rarely, but it's definitely not the core audience. And again, I think those people can still get value from things like this podcast. Like if their goal is just to get news, like this is a pretty efficient way to get that, I think. So I think there are like bits of value. Ransomware payments reached record $1.1 billion in 2023. Last week, we talked about how the average amounts dropped. So what's going on? So ransomware payments in 2023 soared above $1.1 billion for the first time, shattering previous records and reversing the decline seen in 2022, marking the year as an exceptionally profitable period for ransomware gangs. The previous record high figure was set in 2021 with ransomware payments amounting to $983 million, surpassing the preceding record of $905 million by 10%. The resurgence of ransomware in 2023 confirms that 2022 was just an anomaly, with that year's activity impacted by geopolitical events like the war between Russia and Ukraine and law enforcement's dismantling of the Hive operation. According to a new Chainalysis report, the 2023 record can be attributed to escalating attacks against major institutions and critical infrastructure and CLOP's massive Move It campaign. For confused listeners to tie us back to last week, who may remember in the last episode, we talked about ransomware being on the decline. And that story that we covered was talking about the amount that victims are pretty much making for their payments. So, so what's going on is the average and median amount per ransomware payment has dropped, as we covered last week. But there are more people who are getting hit by ransomware, and it's happening more frequently and or people might just be paying more often, which means that we actually have a higher number. So I find that interesting because I guess the amount that people are paying has dropped, but the total amount has gone up. Oh, and I, oh, wow. <laughs> Apple <laughs> really misread the room on that one. <laughs> right, right. Okay, fantastic. Anyway, bad news. And we just talked about how like positive news last week. So I guess in the scope, like a, a wider scope, it's still not the best news. That was all we had for research. We're now going to move into politics. We're going to start off in Canada, who is trying to ban the Flipper Zero to stop a surge in car thefts. 
For those who have not heard of this wonderful little device, the Flipper Zero is a portable and programmable pen testing tool that helps experiment with and debug various hardware and digital devices over multiple protocols, including RFID, radio, NFC, infrared, and Bluetooth. Users have been demonstrating Flipper Zero's features in videos shared online since its release, showcasing its capacity to conduct replay attacks to unlock cars, open garage doors, activate doorbells, and clone various digital keys. According to the Canadian government, around 90,000 vehicles, or one car every six minutes, are reported stolen every year, with car theft resulting in a billion dollars in annual losses, including insurance costs for fixing and replacing stolen cars. The article did not state how many of those car thefts involved. The politician called them consumer hacking devices. While the Canadian government insists that the Flipper Zero is one of the reasons behind the current surge of car thefts, Flipper Devices, the company behind the device, says the gadget can't be used to steal vehicles built within the last 24 years. Quote, Flipper Zero can't be used to hijack any car, specifically ones produced after the 90s, since their security systems have rolling codes. Also, it'd require actively blocking the signal from the owner to catch the original signal, which Flipper Zero's hardware is incapable of doing. Flipper Zero is intended for security testing and development, and we have taken necessary precautions to ensure the device can't be used for nefarious purposes. Unquote. London Underground is testing real-time AI surveillance tools to spot crime. Thousands of people using the London Underground had their movements, behavior, and body language watched by AI surveillance software designed to see if they were committing crimes or were in unsafe situations. The machine learning software was combined with live CCTV footage to try to detect aggressive behavior and guns or knives being brandished, as well as looking for people falling into tube tracks or dodging fares. From October 2022 until the end of September 2023, TFL tested 11 algorithms to monitor people passing through Willesden Green Tube Station in the northwest of the city. The documents, which are partially redacted, also show how the AI made errors during the trial, such as flagging children who were following their parents through ticket barriers as potential fare dodgers, or not being able to tell the difference between a folding bike and a non-folding bike. Privacy experts who reviewed the documents questioned the accuracy of object detection algorithms. They also say it is not clear how many people knew about the trial and warned that such surveillance systems could easily be expanded in the future to include more sophisticated systems or facial recognition software that attempts to identify specific individuals. TFL's head of policy and community safety says, We're currently considering the design and scope of a second phase of the trial. No other decisions have been taken about expanding the use of this technology, either to further stations or adding capability. Any wider rollout of the tech beyond a pilot would be dependent on a full consultation with local communities and other relevant stakeholders, including experts in the field. During all the tests, images of people's faces were blurred and data was kept for a maximum of 14 days. However, six months into the trial, the TFL decided to unblur the images of faces when people were suspected of not paying, and it kept that data for longer. The files do not contain any analysis of how accurate the AI detection system is. However, at various points, the detection had to be adjusted. I'm gonna take the next story because both of us were a little confused heading into it, and so I did a little more research, and so I decided to take this one. FOSS, free and open source news, and we're gonna start with introducing Fedora Atomic Desktops. So there's the normal Fedora Linux distribution, which is Fedora Workstation, which is what most of you probably have used, but there's something that people have classified as an immutable version of that, which is essentially you can't really write files to the operating system to modify the operating system files, and you also get updates as like one big update. It's essentially supposed to be more secure, and people refer to it as immutable, and it's known as Fedora Silverblue. I'm greatly simplifying this. Well, I guess first little correction is... Fedora doesn't actually like the term immutable because it's not 100% immutable and theoretically there are loopholes and it can be bypassed. So Fedora has actually changed to using Atomic to describe this 
instead of immutable. So people who are using immutable to describe Fedora Silverblue, update your terminology to atomic. That's what Fedora wants you to do. So that's step one. Step two, there are different spins of Fedora, which involves things like KDE, GNOME, and all these other desktop environments. So essentially, Fedora Silverblue is its own thing. And there was a version of Fedora Silverblue, Silverblue uses GNOME, by the way, called Kinoite, I believe is how you say it. So Kinoite is essentially Fedora Silverblue with KDE as the desktop environment. And that was a formal spin supplied by Fedora. For branding purposes, Fedora Silverblue is going to remain Fedora Silverblue, and Fedora Kinoite will remain as Fedora Kinoite. Now, there are two other <laughs> spins, which most people don't know about because they use some lesser-known desktop environments, which is Fedora Serakia and Fedora Onyx. And Fedora Serakia uses the Sway desktop environment, and Onyx uses the Budgie desktop environment. So, I'm going to simplify this. And again, it's confusing because of how it has been laid out, but from here on out, this should be less confusing. Pretty much everything now from Fedora that is no longer immutable, but atomic, is now going to go under this classification of atomic Fedora distributions, which includes Fedora Silverblue, Fedora Kinoite, Fedora Sway Atomic, and Fedora Budgie Atomic. Those are the four atomic Fedora Linux distributions. And the only reason why Silverblue and Kinoite don't have the atomic branding as part of them is because they're already so established in the community and they don't want to rebrand those two of them. But Sway and Budgie were less common and so they felt more comfortable rebranding those. This next one's actually pretty quick. It's coming from Session. It says, upgrading from Oxen Network to Session Network. For the last four years, Session has been running on the Oxen Service Network, uh, excuse me, Oxen Service Node Network. In 2024, we're upgrading to the Session Network. For those who don't know, Session, the encrypted messenger, it runs on a backbone of blockchain and they use their own coin. Up until now, it's been a privacy coin. There are multiple reasons we chose to use a cryptocurrency network for Session's infrastructure, like Sybil Resistance, and that is a link to a blog explaining what civil attacks are, how they feel that their infrastructure protects them from that, things like that. So they're now moving from one network to another, basically. When is this upgrade happening? Answer, no timeline. They're just trying to give everybody a heads up and plenty of warning. The Session Network is a new decentralized network with the purpose of supporting and amplifying Session. This change makes it easier for newcomers to understand Session's design, makes operating a node in the network simpler than ever, and unlocks new integrations with useful Web3 technologies. The Session Network will be backed by a brand new token, the Session Token. Unlike the old Oxen cryptocurrency, Session Token will be built using an Ethereum-compatible token. Behind the scenes, this opens the door for Session Ecosystem to leverage some of the best work being done in Web3. Notably, Session Token is also not a privacy coin, but that doesn't mean that Session is any less private. Oxen encountered significant challenges when it came to adoption, particularly among people less familiar with cryptocurrencies. Its potential for ensuring transaction privacy remained largely untapped, which weakened the practical level of privacy it could offer. In in contrast, while Session Token is not inherently a privacy coin, it maintains a comparable level of practical privacy for its users, mirroring the levels that Oxen achieved given its low usage. Next story, I'm, I'm going to simplify this just because I don't think many people care about many of these details, and if you do, check out the article. But Mulvad, the VPN company, has now self-hosting their own support email. Pretty much, they just want to keep things in-house. They don't want to rely on third parties. They also want to have more control over user data. And so they're now using servers that are run from RAM with fully encrypted disks mounted to store the database so that they can still keep track of things like that. 
but um, it's just kind of Mulvad's whole thing of slowly getting to know their users less and less over time, and they're really pushing the envelope on this kind of stuff. So again, these are the same servers running the same OS and kernel configurations as the rest of their infrastructure, except this has a database attached to it so they can keep track of emails and get back to you properly. And with that, we'll move into Misfits, and we just have one quick story this week. You guys may have seen it. The headline says, no, 3 million electric toothbrushes were not used in a DDoS attack. But wait, there's more. So last week, a Swiss news site that I'm not even going to try to pronounce published a story stating that an employee of cybersecurity firm Fortinet said that 3 million electric toothbrushes had been infected with Java malware to conduct DDoS attacks against a Swiss company. However, there's one problem with the story. There is no record that this attack ever happened. Fortinet, who was attributed as the source of the article, has not published any information about this attack. Instead, this was likely a hypothetical scenario shared by Fortinet with the newspaper that was misunderstood or taken out of context to create a story that is widely disputed by security experts. Furthermore, and I'm, as always, I'm cutting out the relevant parts of the article here. Furthermore, electric toothbrushes do not connect directly to the internet, but instead use Bluetooth to connect to mobile apps that then upload your data to web-based platforms. This means that a massive hack like this could only have been achieved through a supply chain attack that pushed down malicious firmware to the devices. However, there is no record of this happening. If it did, it would be a much bigger story than a DDoS attack. While the story of a toothbrush DDoS botnet taking down a site is amusing and almost definitely untrue, it's still a good reminder that threat actors would target any internet-exposed device. This includes routers, servers, programmable logic controllers, printers, and web cameras, and more, etc., etc. Where this really gets interesting is, I believe this came from Bleeping Computer, if I remember correctly, they posted two updates at the bottom. The first update was basically they reached out to Fortinet, Fortinet responded and said, yeah, you're right, this was like a, a mistranslation, something got lost in translation, it was just a, a hypothetical example. However, in update number two, the original Swiss outlet to the news site is doubling down and they're like, no, this really did happen. But Fortinet is not naming names, quote, out of consideration for its customers. Our little prize for, for you all getting through this before we lead into our outro is the announcements. Just a few quick ones, going to go through this as quick as possible. Just really quick PSA, over the next several weeks, we're going to have some production changes. Almost all of them should hopefully be improvements. Just wanted to give you all a heads up on that. So it's still the same podcast. It might be better now. The big announcement is there will be new RSS feeds that everything should auto transition to them. You shouldn't have to do anything, even if you use AntennaPod, it should redirect everything to the new RSS feed, but we're just letting you know. So keep that on your radar. If you don't get the podcast in the next week, either it's late, which happens obviously, but if it's not late and you see it somewhere else, then make sure to add the new RSS link. We'll do PSAs on Mastodon and stuff like that. So make sure you're following us on one of those platforms. We will not be using Substack anymore. We have reasons for doing that. One of the reasons is actually because the new service we're using integrates better with Patreon. And this is the final announcement, which is patrons and people who decide to join our Patreon. We will have a new VIP feed also for you. We're going to be using Patreon's built-in VIP feed so that you all have your own private feed. That's all we had for the podcast in general this week. So Android might be doing away with sideloading starting in Singapore, but you know, we might see this expand to other places. Hopefully not, but we'll keep you guys updated. Mozilla is rolling out a new data broker protection service for those who are interested and a new CEO. So we're hoping for the best on that. Skiff has been sold. Long live Skiff, I guess. If you're a subscriber or a user, be sure to export your data and start moving. And no, 3 million smart toothbrushes almost certainly did not really get hacked, but it's been fun to read the articles about that this week. So 
For those who want to support us, we have Patreon for $5 a month or more. You get to ask us a question on the Q&A that will be out later this week for $10 a month or more. You get an extended version of this podcast with no ads. If you don't care about the perks and you just want something, set it and forget it, and you don't like Patreon, we have LibrePay. And of course, we still have Monero. Monero has not been cracked yet. So that is the most anonymous way to support us. We don't see anything about you. We do see all your contributions and we thank you very much for them. Just a reminder for all those who are in a tight spot financially, we still appreciate the free support as well. So, you know, leaving a comment, liking, subscribing. On that note, actually, if you found any of these stories interesting or relevant, please share the podcast around with your friends and family. Make sure you are subscribed. Give us a rating if you're listening on a platform where that's an option. We are trying to reach as many people as possible with the message of privacy, and you can help us do that. So thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week.